Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast, a podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Till Luca. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. When I was looking for a publisher for a book I wanted to write, I was fortunate to have ended up with two offers. One from a large international media conglomerate and the other from Handspring, which at the time was a small publisher in Scotland run by just four people with a love of great books and our field. To this day, I'm glad I chose to go with Handspring as not only did they help me make the books I wanted to share, the Advanced Myofascial Techniques series, but their catalog has emerged as one of the leading collections of professional level books written, especially for body workers, movement teachers, and all professionals who use movement or touch to help patients achieve wellness. And as a testament to everything that the team achieved in just 10 years, Handspring was recently acquired, big news here, recently acquired by Jessica Kingsley Publishers, where it joins the holistic and integrative health publishing of JKP's Singing Dragon imprint. That's big news, Whitney. What do you think of that? I think that's wonderful news today and also very relevant for our discussions. We have some special guests related to this. And who we are do. the mystery guests we have with us today? Our mystery guests, our special guests today are Andrew Stevenson and Mary Law, two of the founding members of Handspring Publishing. And they're here to join us in a conversation about their story, which is really interesting about publishing and about the ways that our field is developing and growing. Pleased to be here with you today. Shall I, shall I kick off on that? Yeah. Um, this yeah. is Mary. Um, I've, I fell into publishing really, as actually I think many people do, purely by chance. I wasn't aiming to be a publisher. I had, in fact, trained as a nurse, and I then moved to Scotland to do my midwifery training, um, after which I didn't quite know what to do. So I applied to, to be something which in Britain is called a health visitor, which is some way between a district nurse and a health advisor. Um, but I had to wait six months before that course began. Um, and so I thought it would be nice to have, in my innocence, a Monday to Friday, nine to five job uh, for a while, while I was waiting. Um, I found that I was not qualified really to do anything except serve in a shop or be a receptionist because I hadn't type, learned to type. But I managed to get a job as a part-time copy editor with a medical publisher based in Edinburgh. Um, and I didn't tell them when I applied for the job that I was only planning to stay for six months. Uh, after I'd been there about two weeks, um, their one and only nursing author came into the office and the managing director mentioned to her that, oh, we now have a nurse on our staff and told her my name. She then divulged that she had actually been on the selection committee of people applying to do the health visiting course. And she was very surprised to hear I was there full time because I was going to do the course in six months time. So the managing director brought her up to meet me and said, then said, what's all this I hear about you going to do health visiting? Uh, so really without thinking, I said, oh, I've decided not to do it. And I went home and wrote my resignation letter and I've been a publisher ever since. <laughs> so <laughs> totally unplanned. 
Well, <clears throat> well, I, um, it's Andrew here. I, I also fell into publishing, I guess, slightly as a reaction against um, my father's wish that I should become an accountant. Uh, when I was <clears throat> kind of thinking, leaving university, thinking about what I was going to do, my father was keen that I should go into that profession. So as a sort of reaction against it, I said, no, no, publishing sounds much more interesting and gentlemanly, long lunches, no financial aspects whatsoever. I soon learned the hard way that was not true, although the long lunches certainly happened in, in those early days. But anyway, um, I got a job after many attempts uh, and the first job I was very lucky, uh, but it happened to be in medical publishing. And within weeks of starting the job, I found myself in a little car driving across Europe, um, visiting, visiting medical schools and getting professors to recommend books, textbooks. And this was an American for an American medical publishing company called Saunders. So you would kind of rock up in some Dutch city uh, in the morning and you'd go up to the third floor of the medical school and you'd knock on the professor's door and his secretary would be there <clears throat> and, and she would welcome you in and she'd say, Ik heb hier een man van Saunders. I have here a man from Saunders to the <laughs> professor and the professor would then usher you into his inner sanctum and start talking about textbooks. And they loved, most of them loved talking about books. So very quickly, you learned about the textbooks and they talked about not only the books that you were selling, but trying to get them to recommend to their students, uh, but also about the competing books. So you kind of learn quickly going from professor to professor, this kind of landscape of textbooks and how they fitted together. And I found that fascinating. Uh, and, and then after doing that for a bit, I thought, well, hey, it's all very well to be selling these, um, but how do you make them? How do you come up with them in the first place? How do you get people to write them? So I was lucky enough to get a job. Um, a job came vacant at the same company as Mary's um, in Edinburgh. I was then based in London. I moved to Edinburgh for a, an editorial job, which involved going out and finding authors. Um, and that's how I started. I think for both of us, there was a lot of luck involved. I, I found myself sharing an office with a woman who had been pushing for a career as a commissioning editor, um, a, a sort of quite elderly spinster, I would say. And to everyone's surprise, especially, especially mine, and I think to hers, she suddenly announced that she was getting married to a widower with two teenage children and that she wouldn't be able to carry on in the job. And in the meantime, a, a job had been planned for her as a as a commissioning editor, and I was the, I happened to be there. So, um, as I say, a, lo a lot of a lot of luck involved along the way. Not much planning. <laughs> it sounds like luck and a kind of passion or kind of interest in books and in, in the field. Yeah. And you yeah. Am I right in remembering that your paths took you to Elsevier? The, the company that we both worked for that was based in Edinburgh was a company called Churchill Livingstone, uh -huh. which was acquired by, in fact, acquired, first of all, by Harcourt, Harcourt Brace Jovanovich. Okay. And then um, that company was broken up and the medical part of it 
went to Elsevier. So we ended up in Elsevier. Yeah. Fantastic. So Handspring in particular has found such a, a unique and special niche in this particular area. What caused you to start Handspring? Well, I, I think it was the alignment of the stars in a sense that uh, gave rise to Handspring. Um, it happened that there were three people who had kind of complementary skills who all were out of a job, um, had left, um, in this case, Elze we'd all left Elsevier at different times for different reasons. We were doing different things. Uh, and then one of us said, hey, why don't we start the company? Um, and the three people came, that's me and Mary and Serena Walfard, came with these skills and knowledge and experience of publishing of many, many years of publishing, and in particular experience of this area of bodywork and movement. And we, I think, very early on saw the opportunity for something different, something special that was not being done by the bigger companies. Uh, we'd had that experience of working for a bigger company, a certain amount of frustration, uh, and not being able to give authors and the customers the kind of service they we felt they needed, we felt they deserved. Mm -hmm. uh, and so our kind of vision was of a company that would work in a very different way and give a much better service um, to authors, also to customers, also to the other stakeholders, to, um, to freelancers and our own staff. And I think we were lucky in that in that subject area in that i think it's still true now but 10 years ago when we started the the market was hungry the market was hungry for, for evidence-based science-based authoritative professional content uh well produced well organized well illustrated but i think the market was looking to move beyond to professionalize itself if you like the customers were looking to become more professional in what they do, move perhaps from craft to profession. And having books and upskilling themselves, understanding the science basis of what they were doing, I think was all part of that. So I think we got in at the right moment. And we were very conscious of the, of the need to do that, to provide that kind of material. And then you, uh, that's, that's great because you're, you're painting a picture of coming from rather large, well-known publishers, Churchill Livingston, eventually Harcourt and Elsevier, kind of the giant gorillas in the field. And anybody who's done any kind of research or had to look up, uh, you know, references has seen those names, but they, they really uh, have in some ways been the big players, but you, it's from the story you're telling, you really felt the desire to create something different and wanted to take uh, a chance and find some people doing some different kinds of things and really create an environment where we could write our books and you could uh, share them with the world. And I would tell, I'd like to just take a moment to, to um, acknowledge what you all have done with Handspring on that very um, tack, because that's something I don't think many people have thought of very often, which is that a lot of the perceptions of what, people see about the, the very wide and diverse massage and bodywork communities often represented by the literature that that community produces. And the, the very um, 
robust catalog that you've put together in, in relatively short period of time of exceptionally well done books, well researched and, and really good group of authors that you've put together is just, um, it's, I think, been an outstanding aspect of really enhancing the perception of what we're doing in our field. So I would just like to say thank you to you both for, for taking that dive and doing that. Well, thank you. <clears throat> well, thanks for saying it. It's interesting, you know, we, we did, in a rather sort of pedantic <clears throat> way, write a business plan when we started. Uh, we, I guess we'd been too well trained by Elsevier not to write a business plan uh, with strengths and weaknesses, opportunities and threats, all that sort of stuff. <clears throat> um, but we were clear about how we wanted to be different. And if you look back at the business plan now, 10 years on, uh-huh. what we said then remains valid uh, in terms of the kind of company, the kind of the style we wanted to create, the kind of atmosphere or ethos we wanted to create, and indeed the kind of authors we wanted to look for, the sort of topics and the kind of authors we wanted to look for. What, well, give us, give us a pearl from that. What was, what was something that you were looking for, something that you wanted back then? That- I think we wanted something to be, one of the, the frustrations we'd found in, in working with big companies was the lack of time available to, to give to authors. Um, and I think we'd also had that feedback from the authors that they had the same frustration. Oh, um, so we wanted to, we wanted to, and we had the luxury of, because it was our company and our time to be, to be able to give time to develop those personal relationships. And, and because we were dealing with, um, for the for the large part, an author group, a potential author group, who ha- who hadn't had the experience of writing academic papers, um, you know, the authors were lovely, at, like you, Till, <laughs> in um, in you know being willing to listen to our suggestions and, and advice, whereas in the you know the more general medical field that's not always the case you know the professors want to do it their way and they don't want to take advice from the publisher so I think we, we were able to establish a more balanced relationship between us and, and our authors than it than is possible in in a, a larger enterprise yes I think it's more of a partnership it's been more of a partnership between publisher and author mm-hmm. um and, and I think we've been lucky in that. I think, uh, I, th- I think the company has benefited from that fact that it is a partnership. It has been a partnership. Well, that was the case for me. And that's uh, nice of you to say, Mary, that I took your advice. Because I remember pushing back on some stuff. But I was always am- amazed and impressed about how receptive you were to what I was asking for. And we found a way through, which was I hadn't heard that from my other friends who wrote for other publishers that it didn't go that way exactly so that i think you'd accomplish that and i'm really grateful in my sense and i'm just thinking what whitney said about what a service that's done for our field to allow those of us who have become your authors to tell our stories and share what we do in a very compelling way and i would just you know just for the uh other listeners out there that that don't know some of the other aspects of history and publishing with with till and i that um, I, you know, was working with Elsevier at the time that both of you were there at Elsevier and recognize exactly what you're talking about with things 
with the big publisher not being as much in touch with some of the authors and, and giving good guidance and help. And all of my colleagues and friends that I know that have written books for Handspring have said it's a, it's a whole different world. So um, I'm really glad to see that, that your vision came to pass with, with putting that together. So, um, so tell me in terms of like working with some of these, uh, the authors and people you sought out and you know, I know over the years, both of you have reached out and said, who should we be talking to? And, you know, you don't see other publishers doing that so much. And I really think that's been wonderful that you've really made an effort to try to find who are going to be the great, um, you know, voices that need to be heard and need to put things together in the book. So what is it that you do helping to sort of get authors to get projects done and get them done well? Because, you know, certainly a lot of people who are coming to the this time, maybe writing a first time book or something, may not have been writing much. And I would imagine that puts a lot of work on you to try to craft some of these individuals from clinicians into authors. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing we try to do is, is to explain, you know, is to be aware that new authors don't know the publishing process and they don't know what's going to happen next. Um, but we also try to encourage authors always to and any, you know, I would say to anyone who is thinking of becoming an author to talk to a publisher as early as possible. I mean, the, the real heart sink situation for a publisher is when someone comes to you with a finished manuscript, which they've really written for themselves without thinking about who is going to buy it and why they should buy it. Um, so I would say be clear about what your message is be clear about who you're trying to get that message across to and be clear about why they might decide, you know, why they, why they might want it and, and, and indeed need it. Um, and then to talk to the publisher about the structure of, of the book, um, even down to the level, I would say, you need, so you know where, where your chapters are, you know what, author they're what order they're going to come in, and you really, we, we would always ask for a sample chapter so that you know the structure within, within each chapter. Um, it, it's really doing, providing the skeleton for the book before you actually start writing it. You know, you get the, you get the bones and then you, you put the flesh on it later. I would echo that, what Mary says about being clear <clears throat> who you're writing for. And we do encounter, we have encountered in, in our past lives, too many authors who wrote for their peers or wrote for themselves rather than writing for uh, the external audience, the, <clears throat> the, the customer. And getting that clear at the outset, thinking what is going to be useful, what is going to excite the reader uh, and how then best to express that. Getting all that clear at the beginning is very, very important. Um, you were asking <clears throat> um, in earlier correspondence, what makes a good book? Yeah. Um, you know, um, and that reminded me of the old, the old saying, a good book is a good book that sells. Um, okay. Which, of course, means that none of us really knows. It's very, very hard to predict what's really going to be a success. But clarity about who the, who you're writing for and what that book is going to do for them is one of the ingredients of making a book a success. 
You did help me think that process in my proposal. You did help me think through that process. Just your, your, you know, your proposal process and the dialogue there actually did ask me as a, as a first time author to think through as a kind of business plan in that sense too. And that was that's very in, in a way, it's a bit of a test that proposal um, form, which I think pretty much all publishers have. Um, and some some authors, of, you know, it's very obvious from their reaction, want to leapfrog over that. Um, but that, that's that's a sort of net, when you're coming to decide, do you take that author on or not? That is really a, a kind of negative. Because if they're not prepared to actually, you know, follow the the, the what's being asked for there, um, they're not going to actually have the discipline to carry on and and um, write the book in the agreed way. Do you ever have situations where you have somebody maybe that brings you a proposal for something and you see like, oh, this is really important information this is really valuable things but i just don't know that there's going to be a big market for it but we think this needs to get out there like do you ever have a situation where you have to weigh whether or not it's worth it to go into you know pursuing a project because you think it's good versus it's going to be a smart business decision i would say all the time (laughs) um really every project you're making that you're weighing that decision on and and some you know some some you publish because you think it's important um and you hope that the book itself will in a way create the market mm-hmm. but it's it's a bit of a gamble yeah um and it's probably a gamble that bigger publishers can't afford to take um but and sometimes you know sometimes you lose you lose the gamble but uh, Ideally, you 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 um, you shape it. You these days can publish a smaller number of copies than you were viable in the past, and you test the water. and And if it takes off, then great, you can you can reprint. So, in, I think, go ahead, Andrew. Yeah, I was going to say um, what part of the original plan, uh, and obviously, till you fitted that perfectly. Part of the original plan was to find authors who were heavily involved in teaching, who ideally taught internationally, who were well-networked, well-known, and who to some extent could do their marketing for us. Because one of the inevitable consequences of being very small is you don't have a marketing department of 25 people um, doing all five or six channels all the time. And certainly at the beginning, that was crucially important. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's difficult to create a, it's difficult for a book by itself to create a new market. Mm-hmm. If the author is doing other things, mm-hmm. yeah. that, that may, those other things may create a market together with the book. The book will build on that. It's synergistic with other activities of the author. But every book is a, a risk. Every book you're weighing up costs and you're weighing up the incredibly hard to project, to estimate, number of copies you're going to sell, number of dollars you're going to earn from that book. Very, very hard to project. What surprised us, what um, took us, took us uh, favorably by surprise, was the extent to which 
foreign language publishers picked up our books. And that's uh, certainly been the case with Util, um, with your book. Um, and to some extent, books that were marginal, that's not the case with yours, but some of the other books that were a bit marginal have done really well abroad through being by, by the Koreans and then the Chinese and then sometimes the, the Italians and sometimes the Germans, um, Japanese. It's been that was great. We didn't, as I say, anticipate quite the extent to which that would happen, but it reflects the internationality of the area of the field, yeah. The way in which interest in bodywork and movement is kind of percolating out from the Anglo world into the other parts of the world. I certainly found that through the invitations that came from publishing with you. You know, I'm teaching in Taiwan, getting invitations from other places, Poland as well. Through part of partly through the interest that people had in Handsprings books, uh, but in retrospect, I'm just curious what what was the what were the topics? Say there were surprising markets, but what were some of the topics that surprised you in terms of their either popularity or their lack of? <laughs> I think I mean we. We had no idea that uh, Jean-Claude Gambetta's book was going to do as well as it did. Um, we thought it would do well. We'd seen the reaction to him when he spoke at conferences. Yeah. But we had no idea the kind of feeding frenzy for that book. Again, uh, feeding frenzy. I'm looking for his book on my shelf so I can say the name. I don't see it right here. But his Jean-Claude Gambetta is a, a hand surgeon who did these fantastic pictures of living fascia with his high-resolution camera. And then you published a book of his amazing imagery. And that was a good example to which Mary can speak of working closely with the author to turn an idea into a reality because it was extremely labor-intensive. Mary... Mary, do you want to comment on that? It was three years of my life, Andrew. No <laughs> um, Jean-Claude wrote, I think he wrote it first in French. He then translated it himself or tried to, um, but his English was such that we really needed to, to, to translate it again. Um, into good English, but without changing the sense. So we needed an expert in the in the sub in the content material to work with us. And um, through Jean Claude, we found were introduced to this lovely um, osteopath, Colin Armstrong, who uh, is married to a, a French woman and lives and works in France and is pretty pretty much bilingual. Um, and who had met Jean-Claude. I think he'd actually gone up and introduced himself after hearing um, Gimbeto speak at one of the fascia, fascia conferences. Um, and Colin and I spent two mornings a week for about three years um, going through this text, putting it into what we thought was good English, but it then had to go back to Jean-Claude to make sure that we actually hadn't misunderstood anything. So the amount of backwards and forwards really with almost three authors involved was um, substantial, a, luck, a lux luxury in terms of 
time spent on a book. And but, but at that point, we really didn't have much in the way of other books to work on, so we could afford to do it. Other topics, that's individual authors, but have you, have you been, what have you learned about the arc of the field's interest? What's changed over time in your 10 years? I, I mean, I think one is going back to what Andrew was saying about getting authors to help us with, with getting the word out about their books. And it links into the translations point as well is, is actually the use of the internet. Um, and the fact that there are, you know, webinars like this, um, that authors can teach online to an audience anywhere in the world. Um, and as Andrew suggested, you know, we, we very much, if, if an author like you, Till, was very active online, then, you know, that was, that was a, a potentially a good person to, to get to write for us. So clearly, the, you know, we've, we've seen such incredible changes in the publishing industry in the last several decades. And, you know, with the emergence, Mary, as you were saying, of, of digital texts and digital publishing platforms and things like that. Was there ever a time, because, you know, I've certainly listened in on a lot of these kinds of discussions, for example, in the textbook and academic authors associations and other groups like that, wondering if, uh, and you hear, you know, the, the, the sort of predictions about textbooks are dead or books are going away or something like that. Was there ever a time when you wondered if, if the print publishing world was um, going to go the way of, of some of these other things of, you know, newspapers and other places where, where they've really become overcome by digital products? I think not, not recently. I think if you go back uh, 20 or 30 years, when kind of new media first came along, when we first started talking about new media, especially in the 1980s, actually, there was a, a thought, a concern then that the print book might disappear. And that thought has recurred and there's a school, there was always a proportion of people who will say, oh, books are dead. I certainly, since we started, or when we started Handspring uh, and subsequently, never had that fear. Um, I think the enthusiasm that you see at conferences in those days, those wonderful days when we had face-to-face -face conferences and you could stand behind a table with lots of books and meet customers and hear them talking about them. And obviously they're a self-selected group to some extent, but even so, the enthusiasm for the printed paper page did not seem to diminish. Mm. Um, I think one thing you've got to remember, well, one thing I've, I've, I have to remember, um, is that books are not just the content. They're not just the, if you like, the intellectual property. They're more than that. They, books are symbolic, um, in my view, they're symbolic for the customer, the, the reader, of what they, the readers, see themselves as being or becoming. And achieving that becoming is not just a matter of absorbing the, you know, the words, the, the bits. Um, it's also about the physicality of the book, uh, the way the words work with the pictures. Lots of aspects of the book contribute to helping the readers, the customers, again, I think see themselves as professionals. So 
I think the printed book is a better tool for doing that than uh, an entirely electronic product. Yeah. And it surprised also, us. In, in, increasingly, book. our books were ha, had electronic add-ons, if you like. I mm -hmm. mean, John John Claude Gimbeter's book is is a good example where you know we had QR codes within the text alongside the illustrations, which would then take you to an online video um, from which the the illustration was just a still that had been taken from the video, um, and some of our some of the other several other books we we did that with i think so i think i was at conferences at the beginning was quite surprised that there wasn't more there weren't more people coming up and saying have you got that as a as an ebook mm -hmm. uh, but in fact in the end we we published both so all all our books also were available as ebooks yeah um, some people bought both you know they they like to have it on their kindle or whatever but they like to have the paper book to handle and keep on their shelf to to look at yeah there's something to me about um you know i have probably i don't know i'm, I'm going to guess somewhere around 75 to maybe 100 books on my ipad that are ebooks in the kindle um lying in my, in my kindle library and i love the idea that i can take all 75 books on an airplane with me you know because i don't know what i'm going to want to read on a long airplane trip but then in my office there's something about turning around and looking at the books that are on the bookshelf for inspiration for ideas or just thumbing through things and randomly going to pages that still make a print book have its real unique facets. And I think you're absolutely right that there really are, are pros and cons and benefits of, of each of those. Um, but I do also want to just make this quick point also for some of our other listeners about the print book, because you know I've read a lot of, of research into this by looking at what's, what are some of the best ways to produce content for students. And there are some unique facets of uh, and this is something else I want to call out with with the design work that you have done at Handspring with the titles that you've produced, because they're very they're not just good books, but they're very well designed. And the visual design element seems to have, at least according to some of the educational research, some very strong benefits of helping people recall and remember things because they can visualize where that graphic was that positioned on the page and call that back up in terms of re uh, restoring memory about something that they read somewhere, which is a lot more difficult to do with a digital product. Um, and, and that seems to be one of the things that people kind of say like, well, this is why I like books, but they, may, they don't really know exactly why that is, but they just seem to remember things better sometimes. Mm -hmm. There's a spatial aspect to learning and memory. Yeah. And just, that really fits with the physicality of our field. We really are working with actual mm -hmm. bodies and actual time, actual space. It's great. We were very lucky I and mean, we worked with the same designer all the way through 99% um, of our books anyway, um, who had you know, years of experience and I think understood the importance of, of the, the visual layout of the book for, for um, learning. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think we wanted to produce books and, and maybe it was a bit self-indulgent, I don't know, but we wanted to produce books that would be beautiful things. Um, would be objects of, of virtue in, in their own right. Um, and I think we succeeded in that. Uh, well, Till, I think your books are examples of that. Very kind. And no, I, I have the same 
thought process or a similar one where I think, is it enough that I just like how it looks? Maybe I should yeah. use other measures than that. But in the end, just the fact that I like how it looks is enough for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like, it, yeah. it needs to be a good book as well. Okay. All right. <laughs> Yours is. But um, it doesn't do any harm to yeah. have a book that's well-designed, well-illustrated, well-printed, on good paper, well-bound. Um, doesn't That makes you want up. to pick it up. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 Well, what has, it's, you've been at this a while, both in Handspring and then prior, but what would you bookmark or highlight as some of the changes? What's changed during your tenure, your time here? Technology, I would, I would yeah. highlight, actually. Um, yeah. Both the internet we've already talked about and how that has helped and, and made the creation of the market for the book and reaching the customers um, easier. Mm -hmm. um, but also the fact that, you know, in the, in the old days, it wasn't economical to, pr to print, say, 500 copies. Um, but now you can really you can print on demand if you want to so you've still got the same upfront costs of the design and the layout and the setting costs but where where the economics has changed is is actually in in the um, ability to to print short print runs um, so that's, any thoughts on what's changed in the in the content or what sells been enormous changes in the publishing industry. What about in the topics that you've seen emerge? I'm just thinking, you mentioned the internet, how much the internet has escalated scientific uh, discourse and changing how rapidly things, ideas would come and go. And I think it's done something similar in terms of the different topics or interests in our field. And I just wonder about your thoughts about that. What's changed in the way that people are interested in things or the way that people choose topics? I think... Well, I think the internet has possibly made people more demanding. Yeah. And so the kind of features we include in books um, are richer and more varied um, yeah. because of the internet, because the, of that expectation that the internet has conveyed. I think the availability, the easy access to basic science, to basic research um, has probably influenced our books in the sense that, and this is something we wanted right from the beginning, we were looking for books that, where possible, would give the scientific basis, would give the evidence base, the research base for what the author was saying. Um, I think that's only become more prevalent, will become more pronounced. I think the um, 10 years in some ways is quite a short time, um, in some ways is a very long time, but I think the changes, the big changes, that enabled Handspring to set itself up and exist in the way it has existed probably happened a bit before 10 years ago. And they were those points that Mary's made. And also the fact that four, three, four, five people working from different locations with authors all over the world, uh, with suppliers, freelance editors, freelance illustrators, freelance designers, typesetters, printers, all scattered all over the world, that can work. You can be a small company um, 
operating off a kitchen table and deploying all those resources uh, from all over the world, that would have been very difficult to do 30 or 40 years ago. The internet has transformed that and it's got better and better. It's, there are more and more tools to help you do that better and better. That's been, been the big change from the publishing side as opposed to the content side. Uh, I think on, on the content side, what one, the big change has actually been the, the breakdown of professional barriers. Um, you know, that people share, certainly well in the bodywork field anyway, in the manual therapist field, people are keen to share information. So you no longer have, you know, this is the field of osteopaths, this is the field of of massage therapists, this is the field of, of you know, other other groups. That's right. Everybody wants the same the same stuff, um, and I think we've we've all we've always been very careful not to say in our book titles that this is a book for a, a, a particular small, sector. A small group. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh -huh. um, and so that in itself is actually widen the market for if we do a book on Alexander Technique or Reiki or Feldenkrais we're not just looking at one very small group we're looking at the whole field um, that really strikes a chord for me because it's I mean in the tradition that I was teaching in and trained in there were really strong injunctions about sharing information mm. outside of it and a suspicion of publishing or even putting things down there was a lot of energy toward keeping it an oral based tradition or a passed on tradition because of the uh, injunction against sharing. But that's really, that really has changed painfully sometimes in the process of opening. Mm -hmm. But no, I think what you're saying is insightful and really represents a major change in the field. There's so much more interaction interplay now. I have a question for maybe this is kind of like a bigger picture umbrella question too for how you all see the, the current and future aspects of, of some, some pieces of the publishing industry, because, you know, a lot of the stuff that I have read and come across about pressures that some of the other large publishing companies are under, especially the ones that are serving the academic communities. And this would be like, you know, Elsevier and Saunders and or, or uh, Pearson, some of those other very large organizations that have really, especially in the college and university market, seen a lot of challenges to their former economic models because of the proliferation of used textbook, you know, outlets and places for people to buy the textbooks instead of buying them new. Um, and just, just curious, like how you think some of those things might change the, the publishing world. Cause it seems like what that's done is driven a lot of those publishers to, you know, really lean on the authors to come out with new editions more frequently so that there's always newer books uh, available for, to, to combat that used book market. Do you see that impacting some of the stuff with, with what you're doing? I think less so, but I, I think it's there. I think there's an interesting history again, going back probably th at least 30 years of college textbook publishers, particularly in the USA, uh, adding functions to their books, adding ancillaries to their books um, mm. to make them more suitable for courses, to maximize their ability to get class adoptions in an environment where, they, where a class adoption meant you get 100 sales guaranteed, or whatever yeah. the class size is. And there began to be a sort of arms race between the college publishers uh, to add better and better ancillaries 
and that pushed up prices of college textbooks. And this is not so much a feature on our side of the Atlantic, but it was certainly a feature on your side of the Atlantic that college textbooks began to command or demand astronomical prices. And I don't know, I've not been in touch with that area so much recently. I don't know what's happened to that. But it, we have one little insight into it through Handspring, which was the decision on the part of a number of the major publishers to pull out of massage therapy publishing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, pull out of entry level and well, some, to some extent higher level uh, massage therapy textbooks. And that was because, partly because there'd been a decline in the market, decline in the numbers, but also because they'd reached a point where they can't make the, they can't make a profit, they could not make a profit without pretty massive sales. Mm -hmm. Sales which they were achieving with a first year psychology textbook or a first year economics textbook, but they weren't achieving with a first year um, massage therapy in such an area textbook. Yeah. And so they decided not to go on. Mm -hmm. And we took over, we've, Hansbury took over some of those textbooks. And we had to say to the market, well, okay, um, you're not going to get all those ancillaries. You're not going to get, for instance, an electronic platform, uh, learning management system supplied by a publisher like Handspring. The reason is that the college textbook that had your books couldn't make money if they had to provide that panoply of ancillary stuff. So they got out. So you have a choice as customers, either you don't get books at all, or you get books which are simpler, which are going back to what they were perhaps like 30 years ago. So that's been a, an interesting cycle. We also sort of upped the, the academic level, I, would, I think it's fair to say, of, of those books, so that we were aiming them more at the newly qualified therapist right. rather than at the student. Mm -hmm. Um, because, you know, because we recognize the difficulty in, in getting college adoptions. You really, yeah, you really have provided something else besides the mass market and besides just entry-level textbooks. And I wrote, I remember when I was writing mine, I got advice from my textbook author friends to include certain aspects or features that would make it amenable to use in classrooms. And in the end, maybe it's just because of the content, that didn't happen much. There were a few schools that used my book, but mostly it was the people that I teach to, which are practicing professionals mm -hmm. that end up with the book. And so you've, through your model of being able to nurture projects through and see them through because of the vision or because of the beauty, because of the value of the project itself, you've really made that possible, I think, for our whole field. So as in, in thinking about wrapping it up, I'm just wondering, uh, any thoughts you have about what, what do you think the field needs now what is what does the field need now both in the terms of sharing information and publishing but even in topics content trends where would you love to see us go having been so close with us these last decades it's it's really i mean it's post-covid world isn't it that well, sadly not not post-covid but with covid world mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um andrew mentioned earlier you know one of the the joy of going to conferences which was partly to, to present our books, but also to have the opportunity to meet authors, listen to speakers and see who were the ones who were setting the audience on fire. Um, 
I don't know that I really know the answer actually, because I think so many of the opportunities that we had have really aren't there at the moment. I mean, one, one hopes that the face-to-face -face conferences, that face-to-face -face teaching is, yeah. is going to come back. Yeah. Um, I don't know, Andrew, what, what would you say? I think it is very hard to answer the question. I was going to ask you whether you think, looking 10 or 20 years ahead, yeah. um, the disciplines which you know and disciplines which are adjacent to yours are going to become ever more science-based Yes. And whether somehow or other you're going to manage to increase the research content of what you're doing, which requires funding, of course, and that's always been an issue. Where do you get the funding from for research in your area? Mm. And whether that's going to give rise to an opportunity for primary publishing, for research publishing in your area, and whether what possible development, not in the very short term, but in the medium to long term, will be a significant amount of primary research publishing in your areas. Um, That's the moment yeah. research publishing that is done, I mean, you've got, you've got JBMT and you've got a few other journals. Um, uh, some of it goes, quite a lot of it actually goes into conventional science, existing science journals, physiology mm -hmm. journals or whatever. The Journal of but Movement and Body Therapies, is that you're talking about journals that publish research per se in yeah, our field, and yeah. there's not that many. Whether they'll be, you know, be building on journals like JBMT, which was Leon, I guess, Leon Chato's vision, um, whether there'll be more of that. No. You know, so, whether there'll be, a, for instance, a fascia-specific journal, fascia-research-specific journal. Um, which which J JBMT has had sort of issues which were specifically on, yeah. on fascia yeah. and I think I mean it also comes back to to authors sometimes you know going back to to my comment that maybe you hope a book can make the market um, what we've often suggested to authors where we felt that there was a good idea but the market wasn't there yet was to say go and publish the research um, in a journal and create the interest in that way, maybe then get, do a chapter in somebody else's book, you know, increase the, the interest a little bit more and mm -hmm, then, mm -hmm. um, then come back with the idea for, for the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think we end up having some of those challenges where it's, you know, it's one of those things of, of is the cart before the horse in our field because we don't really have a very strong academic model at our entry-level training to create a groundswell of people to eventually do a lot of this kinds of research. So I think that's one of the things that makes it a lot slower and harder to see implementations of those things happening in our field because it's just going to take a lot longer before there are really mm. academically inclined individuals who've got, gotten through that kind of training to lead the way. Um, as opposed lots to many people, other fields. Yeah. That's right. Lots of people would agree that research would be more research would be great, but do we have the infrastructure in yeah. our field to really provide that? Well, Andrew, I like your you 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 turn the question around a bit and you got me thinking too, what would I like to see in terms of this too? And then I uh, first thought is I would love to see even more interchange or more development, both of research and science-based narratives and understanding what we're doing but also for the role of, say, 
wisdom-based traditions or lineage-based traditions as well. And that kind of juxtaposition that that richness provides in our field, we have both. And there are there certainly is a movement towards more scientific understanding and development we're doing, but there's such a rich tradition of other ways of knowing and valuing too that I'd love to see get along a little better. Maybe that's my wish for the world too. Wouldn't it be nice if we could just get along a little better and have even more interchange and less uh, sectors in this whole thing? It would be good. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that it's back to what Mary was saying about the cross fertilization between disciplines which struck us uh, as soon as we got into this area. We were very positively impressed by that cross-fertilization. I think there's only more of that happening now, with different disciplines talking to each other, having conferences together, um, and recognizing that a lot of what you're doing in one side of the fence is the same, actually, as what I'm doing on the other side of the fence. So I think that that will only grow, and that's all to the good. Yeah, I think terminology has often been a barrier, and I, mm. and I think that's um, that's changing. Um, I can remember a few years ago having having discussion about you know trying to have a common language of terms in the bodywork field. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I think the cross, I think it's happening naturally. Actually, now, yeah. I think yoga is quite an interesting example where you talk about a lineage based um, discipline. Mm. Where um, one of the books we're proudest of publishing, I guess, is that edited by uh, Satya Khalsa um, called Principles Practice of Yoga in Healthcare, mm. which brings together, and picking up the point of research, um, put, p- brings together what research there is about the efficacy of yoga in <clears throat> helping people with different health conditions. Um, and that has struck a chord. That book's been amazingly successful, again, beyond our expectations. And I think that's because you've got out there, you've got the growth in yoga therapy as a discipline, rapid growth in, in yoga therapy as an area. But the, the idea that you can bring together, there is actually a sub- substantial corpus of research um, in an area that's traditionally seen as lineage-based um, has been very attractive to people. We'll be sure we'll be sure to put a link to that in the show notes as well as to your catalog as a whole. Anything you want to leave us with? Any closing thoughts that you want to end with today? Well, you very kindly introduced us um, by saying that we had created a, a shelf of books. We we created a, a list that was of benefit uh, to the, these various disciplines. Um, it's been 10 years. I think Mary and I agree, we've had a great deal of fun in over those 10 years in building up the list. Um, we had no idea, although we had that business plan, we didn't really know where we'd be in 10 years time. Um, we have very mixed feelings about having left moved on from the company. Um, we think it's in good hands, um, but we, yeah, we'll, we have uh, some regrets about no longer being involved in it, but I yeah. think at the same time, that's balanced by some sense of satisfaction that we've created something useful over the 10 years for your disciplines. 
So you've been acquired. So your egg, your exit from the field is part of that handing over to the next owners, the JKP Singing Dragon. So that's you have mixed feelings about that. Thank you. What were you going to say, Mary? I just wanted to say that it's also been it's been it's been fun. It's been interesting, but also in addition to creating um, a, a beautiful library of books, we've also created many friendships and and been privileged to to become friends. I think um, with a, a, a lot of people who we would never have met otherwise. Um, so that those are those are the things I shall treasure quite apart from mm -hmm. the, the published list. Yeah, here, here. Yeah. Well, a deep thank you both for the support you gave me, but also for the contributions to our field. And I will miss your active day-to-day -day engagement in the field. I know you'll still be around, but certainly the legacy you've left us and the, all of the titles and all of the authors you've developed over the years is going to be with us for many, many decades to come. So thank you. Both. Yes, indeed. Thanks from both of us. So, and again, thank you. We'll wrap up for, with our guests, Andrew Stevenson and Mary Law from Handspring. And I would like to mention also that the Thinking Practitioner podcast is sponsored and supported by ABMP, the Associated Bodywork and Massage Professionals. ABMP membership gives professional practitioners like you a package, including individual liability insurance, free continuing education and quick reference apps, legislative advocacy, and much more. ABMP CE courses, podcast, and massage and bodywork magazine always feature expert voices and new perspectives in the profession, including both Till and me. Thinking practitioner listeners can save on joining ABMP at abmp.com forward slash thinking. So once again, we'd like to say a thank you to all our sponsors and all of our listeners. You can stop by our sites for show notes, transcripts, and extras. You can find that over on my site at academyofclinicalmassage.com. And Till, where can they find that with you? That's advanced-trainings. If you have questions or things you'd like to hear us talk about, email us at info at thethinkingpractitioner.com or look for us on social media. Our names remain. My name, Till Luca, and yours, Whitney? And mine, Whitney Lowe. You can also rate, rate us over on Apple Podcasts as it helps other people find the show. And you can listen to us on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you happen to listen. So please do share the word and tell a friend, and we'll see you again in two weeks. Thanks again, everybody. Thank you.